Well, today we start a new series on the book of Jonah. Haven't the girls done this? I like this. Do you like this? It's great, eh? I'm on a boat. I'm getting in the zone here. I'm getting in the zone. And so if you want a title for today's message, it's called Nowhere to Run, and we're going to be looking at Jonah chapter 1. In one of the often repeated phrases from our dear friend Sherlock Holmes to his loyal friend Dr. Watson is, as we know, Dr. Watson, you see, but you do not perceive. And he's always saying it to him, and if you follow the books along, it's, it's an often repeated phrase to Dr. Watson, and there's this famous incident where they're climbing the stairs to the office, and he says, Dr. Watson, how many steps are actually in this staircase? And Dr. Watson hasn't got a clue how many steps are in this staircase, and he says, well, there we go then. We've climbed this thousands of times, you see them every day, but you never perceive what is actually going on. Well, when we come to the book of Jonah, I think we can be like that. See, Jonah is a book that nearly everybody, I think, on the planet has heard of. We could even go to Hornsby Town Centre and tell them about Jonah, and they would go, oh, Jonah and the whale. Because everybody knows this book is Jonah and the whale. Jonah and the whale is like a Sunday school teacher's dream, isn't it? It's the one that you want to get if you're on Sunday school that week, because you think, this is awesome. We're going to paint big whales. We can produce a big whale on the side of the wall. We can talk a lot about whales. And it just gives you a lot of data to work with because there's so much drama in this book. And for so many people, they have indeed heard of it. They've heard of the moment when Jonah was thrown overboard. They've heard of the moment when the big whale swallowed Jonah up. And then they've heard of the moment where Jonah usually ended up in Nineveh and preached the gospel and thousands of people get saved. And yet for so many people, for so many of us, I think we see this book but fail to perceive this book. We see it, we get the headlines, but we don't perceive what is actually going on here. And that's why I'm so excited personally for this series. Because this gives us a moment to slow down on four great chapters and not just see about Jonah, to actually perceive what is going on here. See, what we'll discover is this book really isn't about a whale at all. In fact, actually, there's not even a whale in it. It's just a big fish. And a big fish out of 48 verses is three verses. And that's all you get to do with this big fish. This book isn't about the whale, nor is it about Nineveh, and neither really is it about Jonah. This book is primarily about two things primarily about God. He's the main character all the way through the book. Everybody else is just a supporting act at best. This book is primarily about God. God in his greatness. God in his sovereignty. God in his grace. This whole book primarily is about him and we see him in his greatness and in his glory of who he is. And then secondarily, this book is about us. Because the way this book is written is a mirror to to us. So that we see in it God, but we also see in it, if we pay attention, our own faces as well. See, this book then is divided very neatly into four parts for us. And as the Bible's been put together, they've kept it here very clearly with numbers of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 4, which really is four different scenes of the same book of Jonah. And the fact that Jonah is a story at all sets it apart as an Old Testament book of prophecy. 
See, every other Old Testament book of prophecy has a lot of prophecy in it. There's a lot of thus saith the Lord's in Old Testament prophecy. And so when you read Old Testament prophecy, you're reading a lot about what God said directly. And yet this book is very different because this book, out of 48 verses, has only eight words of prophecy in them, which in the original Hebrew is only five words. So we don't have lots of thus saith the Lord's. But what we do have is the story of Jonah, very deliberately placed here by God himself. So we're not going to find line after line after line of what I call sort of power word plays, just big moments where God is speaking to his people. But this book, when seen correctly, does speak to us, just far more subtly, as a big mirror showing us God and showing us ourselves. So we need to pay attention to see where we see God and we need to pay attention to see where we see ourselves because we're in this story. So we're going to give attention today to scene one, Jonah chapter one. So you ready? Let's read this together. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it. For the evil that has come upon uh, the, the evil that has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. But they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, 
and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Let's pray. Well, Lord, as we come to this Old Testament prophetic book of Jonah, Lord, we recognize that ultimately you are the author. You are the one that has breathed life into these words. And so, Lord, would you be the one then that we see in these words? Lord, speak to us from this book. Lord, would we be transformed as we see not only yourself and your glory, but as we see ourselves like Jonah, as we see ourselves like Nineveh, as we see our shortcomings and your profound grace and sovereignty and glory. Lord, open our eyes to this. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, the writer of this book doesn't take long to throw us into the drama of the book, does he? You know, it takes about like half a breath and all of a sudden we're into this amazing story. If you ever wanted to make a movie, make it of this because it travels at a massive pace straight off the bat. You're not going to be bored going through Jonah. And he does it deliberately. He wants to draw us into what is going on. And accordingly then, there is no shortage of dramatic detail in this chapter. But understanding that this scene is primarily about God and then seeing ourselves in the mirror, here's what I submit to you what it's about so that you know where we're going with this message. This opening scene is simply about this, I believe. That there is nowhere to run from the God of grace and his divine purposes. That there is nowhere to run. We cannot run from the God of grace and his divine purposes and so to do so is both futile and ultimately destructive. That's what this scene is about. When you look at this chapter together about what God is trying to say, he's trying to help us see that there is nowhere to run from him and so to do so is both futile and ultimately destructive. And as we unpack then this opening scene, chapter 1, the main character, namely God himself, comes to the fore very quickly. And the author shows us him very quickly and deliberately because he wants to show us three things about God that should cause us now as God's followers to never want to run away from him to never want to run from God like Jonah did. And so there's three things we're going to be looking at about God today, all, is the, all in the premise of unpacking that there's nowhere to run from him. Here's the first. Number one, God's compassionate disposition. Oh, what compassion we see in these verses from the Lord. Look with me again at verses 1 and 2. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. And so in typical prophetic fashion, the word of the Lord comes to a prophet, namely Jonah. And in honesty, we need to understand that this isn't the first time that Jonah has been used as a prophet by the Lord. We see him also in 2 Kings chapter 14. At that point, we see Jonah prophesying on behalf of the Lord to Israel during the reign of King Jeroboam II. 
And the prophecy is all about how God would extend their kingdom back to its original ancient boundaries. And so Jonah appears in that book. He's telling this nation that you're going to be great again, effectively. God is going to expand your borders. You're going to go through a season of prosperity. And guess what happens? They do. So Jonah is now renowned as a prophet of God. He's an individual that God goes to, that they are well, well aware that God uses as a prophet. And yet this book and this chapter is filled with a number of surprises and it does start somewhat surprisingly. So you've got to imagine the, the original hearers of this are the Israelites. They would have had this read out to them. And so it would have been a great shock to them when they hear the words that Jonah is being sent by God to Nineveh. That's a great surprise. Go to Nineveh and call out against them. Basically bring the gospel in effect to them, to Nineveh. See, for an Israelite, when you heard the word Nineveh, what was stirring in your heart, I think, at that point was both fear and disgust. Nineveh? God wants you to go to Nineveh? See, Nineveh was the chief city and capital city of Assyria. Assyria at the time was far and away the biggest and most dominant world empire in the world. Half of the known world was overseen and ruled by Assyria. And Assyria's great neighbours was Israel and Israel then were constantly in fear of Assyria because they knew Assyria could wipe them out at any given moment. And they'd already done that to many, many other nations. And so it would have been a surprise to them that Jonah's being sent to Assyria because they're Israel's enemies. More than that, it would have been a surprise to them because Assyria was a disgusting place. Nineveh in particular. Assyria actually became a byword for cruelty and barbarianism and oppression. So imagine the scene. You're an Israelite and you've just heard that God is sending Jonah and ultimately a message of grace to your arch enemies who are known for cruelty and oppression and barbarianism. Well, that's a shock. And to put it into context, here's some important information for you. Assyria is now effectively modern-day Iraq and Nineveh is modern-day Baghdad. Nineveh actually as a city is just a few miles away from Baghdad. And so here's what it would be like. It would be like God coming to you today and calling you to go to Baghdad in Iraq and preach the gospel to ISIS. Is that helpful? That's what's going on. That's a bit of a shock to Jonah, and it's certainly a bit of a shock to everybody listening on that that's what's taking place. But there are more shocks to come, more surprises to come, and one in particular comes in verse 3 when we read the words, but Jonah. If you were an Israelite at this moment, this would have been, ooh, there's a but? You shouldn't have a but here. You know, God's calling Jonah to do something for him. What we read, what we should read here is, and Jonah gets on with it. But we don't read, and Jonah, we read, but Jonah. That's a shock, because this is Yahweh communicating with Jonah right here. But Jonah, continue reading verse 3, but Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. 
God commands Jonah to go to Nineveh, but instead he goes to Tarshish. So instead of heading a few hundred miles to the east, which is Nineveh, he heads a few thousand miles west to Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain. He's meant to be going to Iraq. He's going on a cruise of the Mediterranean to Spain. You know what I'm saying? Geographically, this is pretty full on. He's running away from everything that God is calling him to do. And yet his issue here and his running away isn't purely geographical. Look at what the writer carefully says. Verse 3 again. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish. Listen again. Away from the presence of the Lord. Both the start of the verses and the end of the verses, the author wants us to understand he's not just running away geographically, he's running away from someone. He's running away from the presence of the Lord. There was quite clearly something in this call of God on Jonah's life that he really didn't like. So he's running. And we find out in chapter 4 why this was such an offensive thing for Jonah. Why he didn't want to go and do this for God. And we discover, just to give you the heads up, that he's not running because he's fearful. doesn't mention fear once. No, there's something far more sinister going on in Jonah's heart, which is why he doesn't want to go. But what is very clear is opening in these chapters and opening in these verses is Jonah is doing all he can to run away from God. He's been sent by God and he's running from God. And if you step back from this picture for just a moment, you realize it is somewhat ridiculous, isn't it? It's crazy. Here is a prophet called by God, set apart by God, sought out by God, who is now seeking to run from the presence of God. That's insane. I mean, one of our favorite programs, or I shouldn't say our because Emma doesn't like it, my favorite programs is police camera action. You know, it used to be on in the UK. It was legend. And you would just see, like, the police chasing after these bad guys. And what, one of the best things about the program is when the helicopter comes out. Because if that bad boy helicopter comes out, they've got you. Because they've got heat-seeking, like, stuff going on in there that's for real, where they can actually see people. So they see people hiding in trees, they see people hiding in houses, they see people hiding any which way. So once the helicopter's got you, and once they've got you, you've gone. There's no way you can escape the helicopter. Well, here we have Jonah, think he can escape the very presence and eye of God Almighty. He's trying to run away, hoping that he won't see him. It's just like a small child when you play hide and seek with them, and they cover their eyes and they go, you can't see me! And it's like... I think I can, you're right there. That's what Jonah's doing. This is how ridiculous this is. This prophet, who should have known better, is running away from God as if to think, I can just go, I can flee from him, and hopefully he won't see me. Of all people in the world, Jonah, as a prophet, should have known better. And yet, before we completely ridicule Jonah, because that's what we're going to be tempted to do many, many, many times in this letter, I want to submit to you there's probably more Jonas in us than we realize. Because do we not do the same? God calls us in the word to lay our lives down for our wives like Christ loved the church. And other not occasions when we say, 
No, I'm not doing that. And we think that God's just not going to notice. There are things all the way through God's Word that we're called to. We're called to preach the Gospel to the generations, to brandish the Gospel and take it to our friends. And, and then we, we, we get hyped up about it on a Sunday, but then on a Monday we're really nervous about it and we just hope that God won't notice. Do we not? And then sometimes we have secret sins going on in our lives that we just pretend aren't there They're usually by ourselves when they're taking place and we feel bad about it to the point where sometimes we think, oh, I just can't handle a life group this week. Man, it's just I feel guilty about it. And church, man, it's just going to be too intense for me given all that's going on in my life at the moment. As if to say that somehow we're going to hide ourselves from God, that as his eye tours the world, he's not going to notice what we're falling into. He's not going to notice what we are doing. He's not going to notice what we're not doing. Before we ridicule Jonah too much, we have to realise I think there may be more Jonah in me than I care to realise. Jonah was doing all he can to run away from God and yet what you see in these opening verses is that God is full of compassion. For Nineveh was a wicked place. But within Nineveh are people that God in his grace wants to save. Hundreds of people, thousands of people, that God is going to send his only begotten son to die on a cross for so that they may be saved. That is profound compassion. And that's how all this story gets going. Because God's calling Jonah to go to them because he wants to save them. He wants his son to bleed in their place that they may have life and that in abundance. God has heard their wickedness. And he's not coming in this moment to judge them. He's coming in this moment to save them. God is full of compassion. Compassion on Nineveh and indeed compassion on Jonah. Because God's not going to let Jonah run. He's coming after Jonah. And what you see then, number two, is God's sovereign actions. You know, God's sovereignty is everywhere in the book of Jonah. All throughout Jonah, you see God in his magnificence and splendor and you see him in his total sovereignty. And one of the things the author, without doubt, very so clearly wants us to be in no doubt of whatsoever is that whatever the characters are doing here, whatever the sea is doing, whatever the boat is doing, whatever the, the, the weather is doing, time and time again, the emphasis that we have put to us is that God is in control of this great drama. As it unfolds, God is the one who is in control. So verses 1 and 2, we see God sovereignly initiating the whole thing. He's the one who is initiating with Jonah to give a message to Nineveh. And from verse 4 onwards, we see God revealing his sovereignty by revealing time and time again how sovereign he is, seen through the way everything responds to him. I mean, look, look at this. Look with me then at verse 4. It says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. It's just so vivid, isn't it? It's so full of imagination. It captures your gaze as you look at this. For right up front to God's sovereignty, the sea responds. Why? Because God is sovereign over the weather. God takes the great wind. And he 
hurls it over the sea. And what happens? Well, the sea responds. The sea has no choice to respond to God's sovereignty. And so the sea starts to rise up into a mighty tempest. And as this takes place, the, the boat itself starts to bob around like a cork. And so we read in, in verse 4, it says, But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, listen, so that the ship threatened to break up. I like that translation. It's helpful in the English, so that the ship threatened to break up, but I prefer the truth translation. If you truly translate the Greek, sorry, the Hebrew, Greek isn't the New Testament, in the Hebrew it says the ship thought it would break up. It makes a person out of the ship. So the same way the sea could not cope with, but do anything else but respond to the wind before the Lord, as the boat starts to bob around, the boat itself thinks it's going to break up. The boat is aware, I'm in trouble here. I'm in, mayday, we're in serious problem. I'm going to break up. So the sea responds to God's sovereignty. The ship responds to God's sovereignty. The sailors respond to God's sovereignty. Look at verse 5. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was on the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. I love this. I don't know if you've ever seen the, the other show that I like, Deadliest Catch. Classic stuff. Those guys are monsters. I mean, they're even braver than NRL guys. Deadliest Catch, you get these mariners that are hardy seafarers. You know what I'm saying? Here's the thing. There are waves on Deadliest Catch crashing over the edge, no one is crying, no one is afraid. That's what these guys are like. They're deadliest catch sailors, you know what I'm saying? They know what it is to sail, they know what it is to be on rough seas. They are wetting themselves in this moment, okay? They are profoundly afraid. These hardy sea mariners are profoundly afraid because they know there is something distinctly up with this. This isn't normal. But the only person that appears not to be responding is Jonah. Look at verse 5b. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. That's insane. The sea responds, the boat responds, the sailors respond. Jonah, where are you? Oh, I'm asleep. See the way the nature of sin works in our hearts? I've experienced this and I've seen this in others. We get so far gone in our sin that even as tempestuous storms are happening around us, we are disenfranchised, uninterested, asleep, unbothered. It's exactly what's happening in Jonah's life. He's so far gone in his sin, he is able to sleep, even though it is obvious that God is getting his attention. But God hasn't finished seeking to get Jonah's attention. Do you know what he does? He sends Jonah, his very own missionary. This prophet who's been sent gets his own prophet. Look at verse 6. So the captain, the one God is now going to use to missionary to Jonah, so the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Notice, 
Verse 2, arise, Jonah, arise, call out. Notice verse 6, arise, call out. Deliberately put there, deliberately the same words, because the author wants us to understand Jonah, who was called by God to go to Nineveh, was not interested in that, ran away from God, and so God uses a pagan captain to get Jonah's attention and says to him, arise, call out. God's on the move. God's not only sovereign over the seas and the boat and the sailors, he's sovereign over this pagan captain. And if Jonah hasn't understood yet that God is trying to get his attention, he certainly was when verse 7 arrives, where it says, And they said to one another, as Jonah comes up from his sleep, he comes upstairs, and they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and what do you know? And the lot fell on Jonah. Donald Gray Barnhouse says this, I just love it. He says, man throws the dice, but it is God who makes the spots come up. And so it is. God all along was seeking to get Jonah's attention. God is sovereign and mighty in his actions. He hurls a wind on the sea. The sea responds. The boat responds, literally thinking it's going to break up. The sailors respond. They're just crying out to whichever God they can think of at the time. Just will somebody save us? The captain responds. Goes on mission to Jonah. And even the very spots on a dice respond, making it clear, Jonah, this is you. Our God is a sovereign God, isn't he? Majestic. The story then continues in verse 8 at a slightly different pace. We've now established that it is Jonah. Verse 8 says, Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? They're just pummeling him with questions. What's up? And he says this in verse 9, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. You know, what Jonah says in that moment is so right, and yet so wrong. It is so right. He is a Hebrew. He does serve a God who is to be feared, and that God is indeed Yahweh, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. He is the one that made the heavens, who controls all things on the land and on the sea. It's so right. And yet it's so wrong. Because when Jonah says, I fear the Lord, the correct response should be, Jonah, no you don't. That's why you're where you are. That's why you went cruising around Greece. Because you don't fear the Lord at all. He's called you to a task, but you're running away from him. So you're going to run away from his presence because you're not fearful at all. And yet the sailors were fearful. As they heard about Yahweh, as they heard about this is the king, this is the one who, who is the God of the heavens and the land and the sea, they are fearful. And so Jonah says, look, you're just going to have to throw me over the edge. And they're like, no way, we're not doing that. Yahweh might, might strike us down if we do that. So they start rowing the boat. They're doing all they can to get this boat into shore. It's not working out. Eventually they cotton on with, it would appear, Yahweh is opposing us. 
It would appear we're never going to get into dry land. So Lord, Yahweh, would you forgive us? But we seem to understand that this is the servant you're after, so we're throwing him over the edge. And they do throw him over the edge. And in verse 15, we then read, So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. That must have been a profound moment, don't you think? One minute, a sturdy sailor is, is worried for their lives. You throw this guy over the edge and at that moment the sea goes... This is God! You know, you would just be so overwhelmed. This is just, this is just unbelievable. But that's how powerful God is. We serve a sovereign king. You know, it is true that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. It is true. And we, we often think of that as, you know, after we're dead and we're gone with him. And I get that. And I think that's true. But the truth is, I think if we see this correctly, we also realize it is fearful to live in the light of, a fear, of, a, of an awesome God. Because God's in control. Do you get that? He's in control. Powerful, powerful control. You know, sometimes we get so anxious about things, don't we? Well, this is the God who holds your hand. This is the God who oversees your life. The one who sends the wind. The one who boats respond to. The one who pagans can even speak on behalf of. The one who brings the very spots on a dice up. God is a sovereign king. He is compassionate. He's profoundly compassionate. That's why Jonah's on this mission at all. But he is also, without doubt, Sovereign. He's profoundly sovereign. And when you put those two things together, you then see the third thing that we see in this chapter about God. And it's great. It's this. God's saving purposes. It's always been about that. His sovereignty and compassion have mixed all the way through to show us his saving purposes. I mean, look at it. And notice the purposes of all that God has been bringing about. Even as he's been dealing with this rebellious prophet, notice the purposes of what God has been doing all the time. Verses 1 and 2, we see he has purposed to save the Ninevites. That's how this all started. God in his grace wants to save this wicked city. He wants to save them by His grace that they may fear the Lord and be saved from their sin and worship God. Well, Jonah doesn't do it. He seeks to run away from God. He's going several thousand miles the other way. He's seeking to run from God's presence. But on his journey, he then gets on a boat with a group of sailors. Though what quickly becomes apparent is God is purposing to save them. And so in verse 5, we see each one crying out to his God. They have no idea who is causing this, but they're aware there is a God who seems to be causing this. Something is radically wrong with the sea today. We are going to perish. So everybody get up, dial a God in this moment, whoever you can think of, pray to him, let's hope, let's hope that God in his grace will save us. But they don't know who is really causing it. Well, in verse 9, Jonah tells them about Yahweh, the true God, the only God, the God of the heavens, the God of the land, of the sea. And in verse 16, 
right at the end, having thrown Jonah overboard, they then say this. It says, Then the men, the sailors, feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. See God's purpose? Jonah is running from the Lord, but as he runs from the Lord, and it appears to everybody it's gone radically wrong, it's not gone wrong at all. Because God has purposed to save these sailors, these people that do not know him, that are running away from him, that don't even know his name. Jonah speaks to them about who he is, about Yahweh, and they put their faith in him. They start to worship him as Lord. They make vows to him. They sacrifice to him. What does that all mean? Well, in the Hebrew context, what that means is they are now worshipping Yahweh. They've been saved. Their lives have been dramatically turned around by Yahweh. And in verse 17 then, we see that God in his grace has purposed to save Jonah as well. I mean, listen, if if I was God, which is a fearful thought, but if I was God, this story would have ended at about verse 4. Because it would have said, so he paid the fare and went on board to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord, verse 4, and Dave killed him. (laughs) We're done. Short book. There wouldn't be a lot to say. And yet God in his grace does not kill him. God in his grace comes after him. And even as they throw him overboard, look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Surely he was being thrown overboard in this moment to a sure and certain death. Surely this is the end. Still more verses than I would have given it, but surely right now this is the true end. It's not the end. You ever tried to tame a fish? Really tricky. But God ordains a fish. My servant's coming to you. I want you to go and eat him. And I want you to look after him. And he's going to be in you three days. The fish responds, up he goes, swallows Jonah, down he goes. God hasn't just sought to save Nineveh and he hasn't just saved the sailors. He is still seeking to save Jonah. He's still seeking to help Jonah. We worship a God with saving purposes. So what a wonderful picture of God we see in this chapter, don't we? What a wonderful picture of who he really is. One who is compassionate in his disposition. One whose grace abounds to us, is slow to anger, but quick to love, quick to show hope, quick to show grace. One who is incredibly sovereign in his actions, who sees everything, nothing escapes his presence, nothing escapes his eyes, and who is sovereign in the way he rules. The one that says to the tides, this far and no further. The one who says to the lightning bolt, you may go, you may not. The one who brings the storm and then stills the storm. The one who says to the boat, you need to panic. The one who cultivates in sailors and pagans' hearts a fear for him so they ultimately start to come to know him. The one who can even use a pagan captain to speak the word of the Lord to his servant. God is sovereignly and powerfully and majestically in control of all things. And he's also the one who operates all the time with his saving purposes in mind. 
constantly seeking to save, constantly seeking to show grace, constantly seeking to bring us to our senses. Well, where then do we see our faces in the mirror? We can see God very, very clearly. Where do we see our faces in the mirror? Well, I think we see our faces in the mirror many times. And I trust even as we've gone through the story, you find yourself relating to Jonah at different points along the way, realizing, I'm like that. I'm like that. But this is the way God is with me. Here's two things I want to draw your attention to as we close. Listen, if you're here today and you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, thank you for coming. You have my deepest respect that you would be here singing our songs, hearing these messages, and right now you're not sure whether you even want to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. And maybe actually in reality you're here today as an unbeliever and in fact you are running away from God. Maybe loudly, Maybe just quietly, sort of passive-aggressive with God. Not loudly running away from him, but quietly, yeah, I'm not interested. Thanks. I'm running away from him. I don't want to follow him. He's all right. But I want to get away from him and live my life. My friends, if that's you, I want to encourage you in the same way that God was sovereign then, he's still sovereign today. And maybe that's why you're here. Because it's a divine setup. You thought you just got invited by your family or your friend. Or you saw it on a website and you thought, yeah, I might go. I want to inform you behind your decisions ultimately lies the sovereign hand of God. And in the same way, 2,800 years ago, God in his grace did not abandon Jonah. He hasn't abandoned you either. God in his grace sent a second Jonah for you. God in his grace sent a second Jonah who would never run away because God in his grace sent Jesus Christ to die in your place. You know, in this word, in this Bible, as you look at the story of a whole, you see how God made us, how he knitted us together in our mother's womb, whether that be through evolution or whether it be a miracle in a moment, what is clear is God did it all. And what's also clear when you hear it to Genesis 3 is that we screwed up. We ran away from God. We weren't interested in God. We started running away from Him and we spent all our time running away from Him. And yet what's also clear is that God in His grace sent a second Jonah, one who would not run away, to live a perfect life and then to die in your place on the cross. And His name was Jesus through his substitutionary sacrifice in your place, you, my friends, may have life and that in abundance. Because Jesus Christ came on the greatest rescue mission ever told. He came to die on the cross and he made it clear if we will put our faith in him as our Lord and Saviour, we will be forgiven of our sin and reconciled to God as our Father, totally at peace with him again, even though we formally rejected him, adopted into his very family, And know for sure that if and when we die, heaven will be our home. Not because of our actions, but because of the finished actions of his son. God in his grace didn't abandon you in the same way he didn't abandon me. He sent a second Jonah for you who did not run away from you, but hung on the cross in your place. My friends, if you see yourself in the mirror this morning, don't run away.
But put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. And before you leave these doors today, you will know what true life is all about. As you feel the storm of your life coming to a lull and you start to relate to God in a way that you could have never asked or imagined before this moment. If you're an unbeliever then running away, I urge you, don't run away anymore. Put your faith in Jesus Christ and run to him. Maybe though you're here today as a believer and if you're honest, as you've toured the mirror of Jonah chapter 1, you realise, I am in that picture. Because just like Jonah, I've been running away too. Maybe loudly, just loudly running away from the Lord. I've done that before. I was 18 and 19 years old. Loudly running away from the Lord, not sure. I'm a big fan of what this is, so I'm running and I'm living my life and thanks for everything, I'm leaving now. Maybe that's you. And maybe you're just quietly running away from the Lord. Maybe in a situation with work where you know you are involved in something that you should not be doing before the Lord. And you're quietly getting on with it anyway. Quietly running away. Maybe a relationship that you know isn't good for your soul. That you know if you want to follow Jesus Christ with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength, this is not going to do you any good. But accordingly, you close your ears to the Lord and you just quietly run away. Maybe a lifestyle choice or a sinful habit or whatever it be. Whatever it be, you know in your heart, I see myself in this mirror because quietly I'm running away from God as well. Just hoping that he won't be able to see me that I'll be able to have it all and he won't notice. My friends, if I want, to, I want to encourage you, you can never have it all outside of God because outside of God, you have nothing. You have a mirage which you think is it all but in reality, as you read in Psalm 73, you realise actually you will finish with nothing. The world lies to us. Our hearts lie to us. But they'll be okay. But in reality, we're loudly or quietly running away from the Lord. Well, my friends, if that's you, I want to encourage you in the grace of God and by the grace of God, stop running. Stop running. Because there is ultimately nowhere to run from the grace of God and his divine purposes. You can't escape his sovereignty and his splendor and his magnificence. But more than that, why would you want to? Because as you see here in this opening chapter, he's a God of compassionate disposition. He's a father of sovereign actions. And he's a king of saving purposes. So why would you want to run from the one who sent his son to die in your place so that you may have life and that in abundance? You may think you have life and that in abundance somewhere else. I want to tell you with every breath in my bone, you don't. Just think you do. But this is life. This is true life. 
So in the grace of God and by the grace of God, don't run away from him anymore. But run to him. Run to him. And in him, may we all find a sweet peace. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, as we stand before the book of Jonah and we see the drama unfolding, Lord, would you give us eyes not just to see, but would you give us eyes to perceive? Lord, you are so sovereign and so majestic. And so when we arise this morning to get on with the day, we assume incorrectly that we're just totally in control. We're just doing our thing. We determine all things as if the world all revolves around me. And yet, Lord, how sobering it is to see afresh in your word today that in fact nothing revolves around me. Everything revolves around you. You are the sovereign one. You are the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so, Lord, as we gaze at you in your compassion, in your salvation and in your sovereignty. Lord, would you give us all grace to be a people who don't run away from you, but who run to you. Lord, would you forgive us for times when we have taken the candy and run from you thinking it would satisfy. Lord, thank you for times then when you patiently bring us back again to what it's all about, namely you. So, Lord, would you be our king? Lord, we love you, the one who is sovereign over all things. And in you then, may we find a sweet peace. In Jesus' name, amen.